In our message last week, in our introduction, we uh, made a case for the, the power of persistence and why it's so important that uh, we should cultivate, that God wants us to, to possess uh, in our life, not only in our prayer life, but, but also in our life in general, the, the, the grace of persistence. I know a little bit about persistence. I would have never survived 35 plus years of ministry had I not received grace in order to uh, persist and not quit, not give up. And so to that end, we told the story about, well, Jesus told the story, and we related the story Jesus told uh, about the power of persistence, and, and, and to the end that it was to encourage his disciples that men ought always to pray and not faint, not quit, not give up. And that uh, this, uh, this is something that God wants for us, that, that God's not reluctant to answer our prayer, but that he desires that we cultivate, he stretches us so that this grace of persistence becomes a permanent, uh, permanent way of living for us, a, a lifestyle for us. Not just a matter of prayer, but, but literally uh, it becomes the pattern uh, of our lifestyle. We used a couple of examples. I, I spoke about the New Testament example of fervent, effectual prayer. And it was Elijah. You remember that it had not rained for three and a half years, according to the word of the Lord. And then Elijah began to pray. And he prayed once, and he prayed twice, and he prayed, he prayed seven times until, until there was seen in the sky a cloud the size of a man's hand. Now, now the way I kind of figure that is that, is that you, you could put your hand up like this, and the cloud would really be a lot bigger than that. But that's the way I figure it. But I also, I also kind of have this, this, the, the feeling or the, the opinion that it may have even been in the shape of a hand. You know, clouds can sometimes take on, you know, shapes of animals and shapes of, you know, different faces and stuff like that. And I just wonder if God wasn't just, just you know, humorously saying that this is what will move the hand of God when you persist. And, and it rains. Uh, and then we also used uh, Jacob as a, another example of the man who refused to let go of God until God blessed him. And, and coincidentally, that night uh, in collision, uh, Doug was speaking about Jacob and the healing relationship that took place between him and Esau, a volatile relationship that, that may have very well been the result of, of Jacob's persistence in saying to God, I'll not let you go until you bless me. And so maybe the very first fruits of that was indeed that this volatile relationship was healed. I also mentioned a gentleman by the name of uh, McRaven, who was uh, the Navy SEAL commander in charge of SEAL Team 6, who brought down bin Laden, and, and how he was speaking at a graduation of, of students at a university. And, and he gave them some encouragement. And he gave them a little bit of background of what happens at Navy SEAL training. And, and basically what he said was this. He said, he said, if you don't want to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning anymore, you don't have to. Just, just go into the center of the compound and ring that brass bell, and everyone will know that you're quit, that you're, that you're out. If, if you don't want to spend freezing hours in the water any longer, you don't want to endure the hard training any longer, all you've got to do is ring the bell. And I know that that resonated with a number of you because I spoke to you after the service last week. But he said, if you want to change the world, if you, if you want to be used to change your world, then don't ever, ever ring the bell. This is 
uh, a statement that I pulled off of the uh, Navy SEAL, uh, U.S. Navy SEAL website. And, and, it, and it speaks about what they call Hell Week. And, and this is it. Hell Week is the defining event of candidates training. It's held early on in the third week of the first phase before the Navy makes an expensive investment in SEAL operational training. Hell Week consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep. Now, when I first read that, I thought, I thought four hours of sleep a night. No, no, it's four hours of sleep for five and a half days. Hell Week tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain, cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress, all while being sleep deprived, okay? Then it said this, above all, it tests determination and desire. It tests determination and desire. And then it said this, right up front, 25%, only 25% of those who are in the first phase make it through to phase two. 75% drop out in that first phase. And then, there, and then there was additional weeks of training where that number is dwindled down even further than that. And, you know, we, we, we often liken, you know, the relationship of disciples and, and, and candidates, you know, like this for the Navy SEALs. Uh, we're involved in a warfare. We're the army of the Lord, you know, onward Christian soldier and all that, you know. Paul said to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier, a soldier of the cross. And, and, and so th- there's, there's right for us to make a comparison. So I'm thinking and I'm wondering, I wonder what the dropout rate is for disciples of Christ. I wonder if people who, who make a commitment to follow Christ, I wonder what the statistics are. I have no idea what they are. But listen, I think we probably all know somebody who has rung the bell. We all know somebody who has quit, somebody who has dropped out of the body of Christ to just stop following the Lord. And, and, and I, wonder, I, I wonder what happens to them. Uh, I want you to think about that with me for a minute. Ever read the Gospel of John chapter 6? Uh, it's, it's, that, it's that chapter where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you don't have eternal life. You, you, you can't have life without that. And, 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 you know, the disciples, many of them said, whoa, whoa, t- time out. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. This, th- th- this is... This is, this is too hard, for, this is too difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And, and, and John, says, John says, and many of his disciples followed him, walked away. They, they followed him no more. In other words, they rang the bell. They, they said, we can't receive this. And they walked away from Jesus. Now, the amazing thing is that Jesus let them go. He, he didn't stop them. He didn't say, guys, guys, come on, come on back. Let me explain to you that I'm, what I'm talking about is figuratively speaking. He didn't say that. He, he didn't make no apologies for what he said. Jesus is kind of like the person who lets the chips fall where they may. But I got to tell you this. Interestingly, John makes it a point to say that Jesus stayed in that place six more months. 
In fact, in the three and a half years of ministry, this is the half year of ministry in which Jesus did no traveling. You know what that tells me? It tells me that they left Jesus, but Jesus didn't leave them. That, guys, you know where to find me if you want to come back. And I think that Jesus purposely stayed right there in that vicinity for that very purpose. Who, who are these guys? They, they may have been many of the 70. Remember the 70 that Jesus sent out, gave them power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. And when they came back from that campaign and they were all excited and rejoicing, and Jesus said, don't, joy, don't let the, the foundation of your joy be in that, but rather to have a relationship with me. Your name's written in, in heaven. And Jesus gave them that warning. You know, in fact, there are, there are many warnings we have in Scripture. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, what happened to those guys when they, when they quit and they rang the bell? And they said, we, we, we can't receive this anymore. Uh, ever read about a disciple by the name of Demas? So here's my, here's my question for you this morning. Ever wonder what happened to Demas? Demas is... Spoken of three times in the New Testament, he is said to be a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul. Could you, could you imagine for a minute being mentored by the Apostle Paul, b- being on staff with Paul? <laughs> I mean, can it get any better than that? Listening to Paul's sermons, probably taking dictation from Paul when he, when he wrote his letters to the, the you know, Philippians and, 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 and Corinthians and all that, and seeing the miracles of raising, of raising somebody from the dead and, and being a part of that, at, at least, I could, I could calculate, at least five years of ministry that, that Demas had working side by side as a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. But this is what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, 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 it says this, but I want you to know this. This is Paul's last letter. This is Paul's last letter before his execution. And what he says to Timothy was, hurry up to get to me because for, he says this, Demas has forsaken me having loved his present world and has departed to Thessalonica. Demas rang the bell. Demas, when A-W-O-L, Demas left me here in Rome and has gone to Thessalonica because of an unhealthy love for this world. Now, now it wasn't out of fear. It wasn't out of fear that he might be executed along with the Apostle Paul. That, that's not it. Paul says it was something that attracted Demas from this world that is unhealthy, a love of this world that's unhealthy. Maybe the, the, the life of living in a big city like Thessalonica. For whatever the reason, Demas departed. So you ever wonder what happened to Demas? You know what? It's easy for us to write Demas off. It's it's really, I mean, we don't have the infinite wisdom that God has or the infinite patience that God has. And and so it's easy for us to write. I mean, after all, he's a quitter. You know, what's that that saying? You know, quitters never win and winners never quit, right? So it's kind of easy to write us off. I mean, didn't Jesus say this? Listen, in Luke 9, 62, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow looking back, looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That would disqualify Demas, wouldn't that? Or what about the the fearful words that Jesus spoke? I'm sure that when Jesus said these three words, it must have sent chills up and down the spine 
of his disciples. In fact, the, the translators, the, the guys who put chapters and verses for us to make it easy for us to make reference to as we read the word of God, they, they thought it's significant enough, these three words significant enough that they, that they actually made it a sentence of itself. They made it the second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Said chills up and down their spine. Remember Lot, what happened to Lot's wife? She turned back. And it didn't go well for her when she turned back. But I'm also reminded of another young man who also rang the bell and went A-W-O-L. And in fact, he had a pattern of, of running away. In fact, the, the first time we see him in Scripture is in the Gospel of Mark, and, and it's when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He kind of followed. He, wasn't, he, he probably was maybe around 16, 17 years of age at the time, and he followed you know, from a distance. And, and uh, when Jesus was arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, mayhem broke out, and all the disciples began to split. The soldier went to lay hands on this young man and... He, he cut out. He left, and, and the only thing that that soldier had a hold of was the garment in which was, it was a linen garment that was, that was wrapped around this young man. It probably was a bed sheet. He, he probably, out of curiosity, went to follow the disciples, and then when he, Jesus was arrested, I mean, this is the guy who, who, who carved the T-shirt out that says, feet don't fail me now. I mean, when the soldiers tried to lay hold of him, he was out of there. He ran. So he has a pattern of running away. And, 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 and what's so interesting is that in verse 10, we just read about Demas. And, he, and so Paul says, listen, come to me quickly because Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. But in the next verse, verse 11, there is one of the most encouraging, hopeful thoughts in this whole line of what I'm talking about this morning is because what Paul says is this. He says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in the ministry. This is John Mark we're talking about. This is, this is the John Mark who was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and what happened was the same thing. He rang the bell. He, he, he went A-W-O-L. He left them right on the mission field. He, he, he went home, back home to Jerusalem. And as a result of that, when they had the Jerusalem council sometime after that, and, and Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance, wanted to take him with him, Paul says, absolutely not. He's disqualified as far as I'm concerned. And the, and the Bible says that the the contention between them was so sharp that it was a church split, if you will. They broke off their partnership. What a great partnership they had. But Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark, and they went their separate ways. But here now, at the end of Paul's life, Mark is fully reconciled to Paul, completely and extremely trusted once again and useful to him for the ministry. You know what this is? This is a contrast. It's a contrast of, of, of Demas being a, be, being a sign of warning to us that, that we should never quit, we should never ring the bell, we should never go A-W-L-L, but it's also, 
It's also a message of hope that if we do stumble and fall, that there's always the possibility of restoration. You see, because we are people that sometimes stumble and sometimes fall. And we need both the warning and we also need the hope of restoration. At the beginning of Demas's ministry, he did well. Remember we said last week, it's, it, the most important matter is not how you start, it's how you finish. More important than, than the beginning of a matter is the end of a matter. And, and, and Demas had it great in the beginning. I could tell you five years before that, when Paul was in prison, Paul said, Demas, a fellow worker, is with me. He was, he was, at that point, he was like Moses. He was willing to suffer affliction with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He was a fellow laborer and warrior with Paul in the kingdom battles. But something happened. He took off. And so it's a word of warning to us to watch and to be sober because we have an adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom we are to resist steadfast in the faith. And that word steadfast is the same as being persistent, that we are to resist the temptations, resist the the evil one, because he's not only real, he's also deceptive. And, And somebody as strong as a leader as Demas obviously was can be brought into a place of deception. Mark, on the other hand, gives us amazing hope because Mark had a poor beginning. Mark is the guy who fled that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark is the one who fled on the mission field. But somehow something happened to him where he brought about a change in his life. And, you know, it's believed that it was the Apostle Peter who who knew an awful lot about failure, who, who knew an awful lot about what it's like to blow it big time, that he somehow became the mentor of this young man by the name of John Mark and poured into his life. And as a result of that, he made such an incredible comeback that that God and Jesus is not ashamed to give him the place of writing the gospel according to Mark, of being so anointed by the Holy Spirit that he would inscribe a gospel that has blessed countless millions of people ever since the gospel of Mark was written. So, so, so there is tremendous hope for us that, yes, the, 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 the youth shall fail and shall utterly fall, but they that wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall man up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and they'll not faint. Not fainting means that you're persisting. And God wants that for each and every one of us, not only in our prayer life, but he also wants that in our general life in all of the areas of our life, in the areas of gifting, in the areas of his calling, the areas of responsibility that God has given to us. But you know what? In a sense, we've all rung the bell. In many, in many things, we, we have offended. But you know what the amazing thing is? The amazing thing is, is and then God, God gives us tremendous grace, but, but the amazing thing is, is that Adam rang the bell. He was the first one to ring the bell, the first one to go A-W-O-L, but he did it when things were really great. He did it in, living in a paradise. He did it when, when God says everything was really very good. He, there was no storms in his life. So I think that God gives us grace knowing that we live in a broken world, in a fallen world. 
And as a result of that, God is gracious to us. He is long-suffering with his creation. Here's Here's a statement that's worthy of a tweet. God didn't allow Adam's disobedience or ours to short-circuit his irrepressible, tenacious, relentless love. God didn't allow Adam's disobedience. He didn't allow my disobedience to short-circuit his irrepressible, tenacious, relentless love. You see, because when we talk about when we talk about tenacity and we talk about persistence, then we've got to talk about the God of tenacity and the God of persistence. And, and, and the gospel reveals that God is the ultimate per, preserver, not preserver, perseverer. There you go. That's what I meant. I had to look it up. It's really a word. He suffers long. He's patient. Even when we're not, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Somebody wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And, you know, it sounds a little disrespectful to refer to God as a hound. But that's what God does. He pursues us and he chases us. Like a Jonah who tries to run away from God. You may have tried to run away from God, but God will pursue you. You see, I can't tell you exactly what happened to, to Demas because we, we, we don't really know definitively, but we know the God of the Bible and we know the character of God, that God is married to the backslider, that God is persistent, that he chases us, and he has a way of bringing us back to himself. Even when we run away, when we ring the bell, He's committed to the Demases and he's committed to the John Marks and he's committed to those of you who may have spent some time running away from God. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and whatever cost to him. You know, it probably is a good idea to, to be fearful of whatever it might cost to us. But whatever it might cost to us to bring us back to him, it is nothing in comparison to what it cost him to bring us to himself in the first place. For that purpose, innocence had to suffer the guilty. You know, over the course of history, there's been many, many instances where somebody who's been innocent has been falsely accused, but even worse than being falsely accused is being falsely punished to bear the punishment when you're innocent. I mean, could you imagine being in jail for 10, 15, 20 years and you were innocent of all charges against you? I think about Hurricane Carter. I, you know, I just I remember him at the time of his imprisonment and I remember him a couple of years ago when he was released because 
he was proven to be innocent. There's this group called the Innocent Project. You may have heard about them. They are committed to uh, helping those who are really innocent and have been falsely accused and falsely punished. This, this comes off of their website. This is what they say. The Innocent Project is a national litigation and public policy organization dedicated to exonerated wrongfully convicted individuals through DNA testing. And it's been said that the men and women who serve on this project are extremely relentless and tenacious to right the wrongs of those and to tip the scales of injustice. And I was thinking about that. So I I would imagine that if these guys were around during the days of Jesus and the sham trial that Jesus experienced, they may have rose to his defense. I mean, after all, Pilate examined Jesus on two occasions and he said and came out to the crowd says, I find no fault in this innocent man. In fact, his wife said, said, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've suffered many things of him. And then, and then Pilate called for a bowl and he washed his hands and he says, I am, I am guiltless of the blood of this innocent man. No, you're not. No, you're not. It was the greatest uh, travesty of justice that's ever been perpetrated. In his book, Max Lucado, The Applause of Heaven, has this to say. He says, It wasn't right that spikes pierced the hands that formed the earth. It wasn't right that the Son of God was forced to hear the silence of heaven. It wasn't right, but it happened. And for a while, while Jesus was on the cross, God sat with, with his hands, sat on his hands. He turned his back. He ignored the screams of the innocent. He sat in silence while the sins of the world were laid upon the Son of God. And he did nothing while a cry echoed against the blackness of the sky. Was it right? No. Was it fair? No. Was it love? Yes. The irrepressible, relentless love of God. That's the picture of God's irrepressible, relentless love to have suffered in this way for us. And the Bible says, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. You know, science has uh, come up with the uh, understanding that there are health benefits in kissing a child's boo-boo. Not honey boo-boo, Uh, but a boo-boo caused by a scrape or an injury. Uh, This report was coming from uh, NBCNews.com under the title, Soothing Moms Lower Stress Hormones Tied to Disease. And it's interesting. It says, a loving mother who kisses her child's boo-boos may be providing more health benefits than she knows. In fact, the new study indicates that early childhood experiences can have a lasting effect on the immune reaction that is in the body's first line of defense against disease. Moms who soothe a child can help reduce stress, calming the hormones that can contribute to inflammation. Now, it's always been believed that, that mommy's kiss is, is the best medicine, right? Kelly was talking the other night. Uh, and deeper great message, by the way, uh, about how, 
how uh, Landon uh, had a gash in his leg, exposed the bone, was taken to the ER. But she didn't send him to the ER. She took him to the ER. And she didn't pat him on the head and said, now, now go with the doctor and he'll stitch you up. No, she held him in her arms. And she comforted him. And she said, that's what God does to us when we go through suffering. Because God loves us that way. So the study concluded by saying this, that the age-old practice of a kiss is clinically efficacious. In other words, it really does have benefits. So I ask, what about us? What about us adults? I haven't scraped my knees in years. But we have, we have much deeper boo-boos. We have wounds that go down into our spirit. We have, we have broken hearts sometimes. We have broken relationships. We have loved ones that we're separated from. We have our own self-inflicted wounds that are caused by bad moral choices and the consequences of those wounds. What about... What about us? You, 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 you can't get healing in the ER for that. You can't find healing in a medicine cabinet for those kind of wounds. But there is healing available. There's a properly administered kiss that comes from God that can heal the deep wounds of adults. And that's exactly what God offers to us in Christ who came into the world to live and to die for us, as us, that we might experience the fullness of God's love. And experience that, listen, experientially, the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the love of God, the very real, tangible kiss from heaven. Turns out that you don't have to be a child to benefit from a, the healing power of a well-placed kiss. You know, if I, if I understand anything at all about, about the cross, then, then I believe this, that the cross is the kiss that can heal even the backslider. That the cross is the kiss that can heal all of our backsliders. There's, not, there's nothing more powerful than the love of God. So let me leave you with this. The relentless, persistent love of God and the God of love saves, heals, and forgives and can even restore those who have rung the bell because there's hope in God and there's hope for restoration. I don't know, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe, maybe you've been running away. Maybe you're thinking about running away. Maybe you're thinking about ringing the bell and quitting. There, there are Words of warning for us this morning. Don't do that at the cost that might be more than we're willing to pay. I want you to think about that for a minute. Fact of the matter is, is that the love of God is the greatest medicine of all to heal us, to keep us, to keep us from falling. The series we did last time, 
His grace is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence. Let God administer that aptly placed kiss this morning, that embrace. Just as Kelly held, landed in her arms. So let God hold you today and keep you in his love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the grace of God that is able able to keep us, able to heal us. And I'm asking you this morning, Father, to kiss the wounds that we've experienced in this life, the self-inflicted ones, the ones that have, that have happened to us, the ones that we've experienced, Lord God, the, the, the broken hearts, whatever it is, Lord God, that we've experienced that needs the administering of your healing that would, that would make us want to run away like, like a Jonah. Keep us, Lord God, safe in your arms this morning. Keep us close to you. I pray this morning, Lord God, for anyone that's here today right now that, that's been thinking about, been tempted to ring the bell, that today, Lord God, you would give them grace and that they would experience, Lord God, what it's like to be persistent, to be tenacious, to be, to be relentless, just as you are relentless, just as you are persistent in revealing your love to us. And we all sit together, amen.